0: You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Would you stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word? We're continuing in our series in the Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus and we find ourselves in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, if you don't have Bibles, you can pull them up right in front of you and the pew backs in front of you, or we'll have it right up here on the screen so you guys can follow along. So hear these words from the Apostle Paul to this small church in the port city of Ephesus. We continue along in this letter and Paul says of this gospel verse 7 I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power to me I'm the very least of all the saints this grace was given to to preach to the gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the hidden or the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. So last week, we saw how this gospel of Jesus Christ is not a mystery that has remained concealed, but it's a mystery now revealed. It's now revealed not just in the person and work of Jesus, but it's now revealed in this multi-ethnic new humanity called the church. The church is the mystery revealed. You see, if the church is just a resource for you, if the church is simply something that you occasionally do every so often on a Sunday to get your spiritual pick-me-up or for your social outlet, then what you're revealing about this mystery is that it's all about you. It's all about you. But if the mystery that is revealed through the blood of Jesus is something other entirely, then it reveals it's not about us. Because this mystery revealed is not about me, but about we. It's the ingathering of all people from all nations in all places. It's the end to all ethnic and racial divisions. It is the end of all hostility. It is the beginning of the brand new temple in which God's spirit dwells. See, what we'll come to see and have as Paul prays, the eyes of our heart enlightened, is this, that the gospel was made known to us, the church, so that it could be shown to others. The gospel was, be, was made known so it could be shown. Do you hear me? Made known to us, the church, so it could be shown to the world. Did, did you know that? That the, that the church, this multi-ethnic community centered on the grace of Jesus Christ, exists for this very reason. That grace was not only meant for your salvation, It was, it's nothing less than that. But this grace that was revealed to us is also grace to be revealed to others. And Paul's gonna show us that two ways. He's gonna show us that we need grace to suffer as a minister of the gospel. It's the first point, grace to suffer as a minister of the gospel. And second, we need grace to show off the manifold wisdom of God. Grace to suffer as a minister of the gospel and grace to show off the manifold wisdom of God because this grace was made known to us, the church, so it can be shown to the world. Y'all ready to dive in? First point, grace to suffer as a minister of the gospel. Follow along with me in verse 7. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. See, of this gospel, Paul was made into something. It didn't cost him. He didn't have to pay for it. It was no charge to his own life. It's according to this gift of grace, he says. He's now a minister. That word minister, you might recognize it from the Greek. It's diakonos, where we get the word, can you guess it? Deacon. Deacon means servant or slave. It's a servant of this gospel, and what motivates him to serve is because the gospel is Christ not coming to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Christ serves Paul, and now Paul, in his weakness, has this power to serve others. This is the gospel that he is a servant of, he says. Now, what is the gospel? Let's start off by saying what it's not. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted because Jesus has obeyed in my place, therefore I want to obey. Religion says, I follow God in order to get things from God. And the gospel says, I follow Jesus to get Jesus, to delight in him and become more like him. Religion says, I have to share about Jesus. Okay, but I'm kind of ashamed. But the gospel says, I get to share about Jesus. Because he wasn't ashamed to associate with me, even by putting my story on him, my sin, my shame, on the cross. Oh, now, I want to share. I'm not ashamed of it anymore. It's all grace to Paul you see all those words in verse 7? Grace, given, gift. All received, not achieved. To preach this gospel meant suffering for the gospel. To preach this gospel, to serve like Christ, means to suffer like Christ. All this grace was power. Do you see that end of verse 7? Working in him. What is this power? He's already introduced us to this power. It's the very power presence of God, the Spirit of God. Paul knows that he cannot serve in his own power. He needs a power outside of him to come inside of him, to work through him. See, what does it take to become a servant, a minister of the gospel?
1: What do servants have to do?
0: They have to suffer to fill needs. And what is the need? People need to hear about Jesus. Religion says, I don't deserve to suffer because I've done so much good. The gospel says, I deserve so much worse than the suffering I'm experiencing. I actually deserve death. But Jesus took that in my place. So now, in all of my sufferings, I'm now conformed to his likeness so that other people can know about Jesus. Amen? Amen. To become a servant, you have to see how big Jesus is and how small we actually are. It's to be humble. Small, Paul will say elsewhere, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. And this is how Paul continues in verse 8. To me, he says, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul says, I'm the least of all these saints. Do you see that in verse 8? This is not self-deprecation. This is not hypocrisy. This is proper self-awareness. Paul had a right view of himself because he had a right view of God. And this term, this name, Paulus, Paul didn't get his name changed when he met Jesus. Paulus is his Roman name. He had a Jewish name, Saul. But His Roman name is Paulus, which in Latin it means little or small. And church history and tradition tells us that Paul was actually a small man. And so what he's probably saying this in every sense of the world, least, the very least of all the saints, he's saying, yes, I am little, Little by name, little by stature, little in my morality, little in spirituality. I'm the littlest of the littlest of all Christians. But through me, even in my smallness and my weakness, the power of God is made manifest so I can preach, announce, declare this good news to people who are nothing like me. I'm a Jew. I'm here to announce this to the nations, the Gentiles. And Paul says, that I'm here to preach this message of Christ. If you look back to verse 6, he says, it's knowable and unsearchable. How can these things two coexist? How can something be knowable and unsearchable? Well, for Paul, these must not be at odds. Unsearchable does not mean we cannot understand it. But rather, we are too infinite to comprehend the infinite nature of this. I mean, we know how big the ocean is, right? We know what an ocean is. But have we been able to search the vastness, the depths, the breadth of the ocean? Oh no. We haven't been able to do it over one person's lifetime, let alone ages of lifetimes. It's
1: simply unsearchable.
0: We can know it, but it's still unending treasures and riches. Hear me on this. This is what Paul's saying. You are never too small to be used by God. You're never too far gone to be used by Paul by God. That's what's saying on on one hand. I'm very least and I'm still being used by God. But you're never too big or extraordinary or all-knowing that you'll be able to completely know the riches of Christ. This is how the gospel both dismantles all of our pride but delights us even in the midst of our pain. It brings us low so that we can serve others. But even in that suffering, it'll still give us awe and wonder and joy. These riches, do you remember what those riches are? that future resurrected inheritance. I wonder, have you ever met somebody who seems just to know everything and have the answers to everything? Have you ever met somebody like that? None of y'all? Help me out here. Yeah, you've met someone like that before. And what baffles me is when I meet Christians like that. Christians who seem to know everything on every given topic. Like the trolls on Twitter or Facebook. And this has always puzzled me. Puzzled me that Christians would be able to say, I know everything. I mean, what a boring life to live, to already know everything,
1: to say there's nothing
0: new, there's nothing for me to see, new for me to see, nothing new for me to know, I mean, what a boring life, nothing is new, nothing has wonder, nothing has awe, but Paul, an apostle, A church planner, a leader, an author, a theological mastermind knows how deep of a sinner he is and how unsearchable are the riches of his Savior. Like the earth, they're too vast to explore. Like the ocean, the depths are too difficult to fathom. And he says, I'm not only going to preach this message. I'm not just going to preach it with my words. I'm going to shed light. And what he's saying is I'm going to, show it off. Don't just need the words of the gospel. You need to be able to show it as well. I'm going to shed light to everyone, both Jew and Gentile, this hidden mystery of God. Remember, we said last week, this mystery is not something that remains hidden. It's not something that's puzzling anymore. Y'all remember the show, Unsolved Mysteries? How many of y'all watched that thinking that by the end of that show, they were going to solve it for you? Yeah. And you're still wondering at the end of the show, Unsolved Mysteries, they're telling you that it's not going to be solved. You're still wondering, where are they or who done it? This is not how we understand the word mystery in the Bible. Mystery is something that is always, that was once hidden, but is now revealed in the person and work of Jesus. It has been hidden for ages in God, verse 9, but it's now revealed. The apostle Peter says, prophets, they prophesied about this Christ, this Messiah. And he goes on in 1 Peter 1:12. he says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. They didn't know what this Messiah was going to be like when he came. But he's serving us by foretelling And the things that have now been, it wasn't announced back then, but now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things in which, oh, this is amazing. Angels. Mind blown. Angels long to look on the things that have been revealed to us. Anybody else amazed
1: by that? Side note, angels don't have wings.
0: It's the cherubim, seraphim. Angels longed to look, longed to look on this grace that made enemies, Jew and Gentile, one new man in Christ Jesus. This mystery of grace reveals not just the grace that saves, but empowers us to suffer. Because that grace is the Spirit of God. The same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead now empowers us to suffer for this gospel message. But not only that, why has this been done? Why has this been revealed to us? Why was this made known to us? It might surprise you. It's made known to us to make it known to others. To show off, second point, the manifold wisdom of God. Look at that so that in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be known, be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul now takes this gospel formed, grace created family and calls it the church. Ekklesia, for all of you Greek nerds in here with me. You know what he's saying? The church, the Ekklesia is the primary means that God announces this good news. Not just to your neighbors, not just to the nations, but look at what he says. To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Who's that? Glad you asked. Flip over to chapter 6 and look at verse 12. He defines it, for we do not, oh, I love that sound, Bible pages turning. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the, say it, heavenly places. Same phrase back in chapter 3. These evil forces, Satan and his legions, are put on watch through the church. These evil authorities have been served their warrant by and through the church of Christ. Scotty Smith sums it up this way in his commentary on Ephesians. Through the church, God puts the cosmos and all powers on notice. Jesus Christ is Lord, the Savior of the world, the one who's making all things new. Through Jesus and only through Jesus, Jew and Gentile both have bold access to a throne of grace. This is the church's meaning, message, and mission. This Plan has been hidden for ages in God before he laid the foundation of the world, even in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, God created us from community in the Trinity, for community with one another. We had unity horizontally, unity vertically. That's what communion means. Calm means with. Union, communion with one another, communion with God. But then Satan, posing as a serpent, personified as the serpent, comes in, gives a different vision for humanity and creates division between God and man and man and woman. And then God comes down and he curses the serpent. And he says, now there's going to be enmity, there's going to be beef, there's going to be war between Your offspring, serpent, and Adam and Eve's offspring. Now, what we don't see in the pages of the Old Testament is humans and snakes at war. Unless you're Samuel L. Jackson on a plane. Right? What do we see? What do we see? We see the line of Adam... To Abraham, to Jacob, to King David, at war with these evil forces. You can even go into the 30s of Deuteronomy 30s and see how the Lord handed over all the nations to all of these evil, lesser, lowercase g, gods. Go have fun. This It's, It's a whirlwind of fun. But what's happening? Satan's legion is at war with the lineage that is coming from Eve. And Satan meets its maker in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the heir of David from the line of Jacob, Abraham. The Gospel of Matthew tells us it goes all the way back to Adam at war. When he pronounced this curse on the serpent, he said, You will bite this offspring, singular offspring. A bite to his heel will get you a foot to your head. And as that nail pierced our Jesus' foot, his heel, it gave a boot to crush. Satan and his legion's head. And it was only after Christ was risen from the dead. He's saying, I am the second Adam who has resisted Satan's temptation to divide us from God and separate us from one another. He's putting these cosmic forces and rulers, he's disarming them and putting them to shame, not only in his death, but in his resurrection. Colossians 2.15 says he's disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. You see, had those rulers known that killing Christ would be the dismantling of their strategy, they wouldn't have crucified him. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2.7-8. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. That language should be familiar to us now. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We impart this secret and hidden wisdom, Paul says. Through who? The church. God puts the forces of evil in the heavenly realms on notice. Death is defeated. Jesus reigns. Satan's dividing plan has been stopped. It's ceased because we now have a unity plan in the person and work and the blood of Jesus. Division crushed. Unity prevails. When we say this was Plan A, this was from the beginning. This is what we mean. This is God's plan from the beginning—a multi-ethnic, multicultural new humanity, which was once was two, is now made one in Jesus. It's now the united in Christ as the church. And He says in verse eleven, "This was according to the eternal." Purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. God planned it, He predestined it, and He chose us. Because if we would have planned it, we would have planned a community of folks who are convenient and comfortable to be around. Wouldn't we have? If we would have predestined our ideal church, we'd have chose people who look like us because it's just easier to love people who are similar. But God predestined people with distinctions and differences so he can show off his manifold wisdom, not just to the neighbors, not just to our nations, but to the heavenly realm, those evil forces. Satan, your kingdom is done with. It has fallen. It's been toppled over. We show this off through the church. Listen to me. Do do you know what this means? He doesn't say we show this off through the super holy apostles. He doesn't say elders show this off or deacons show this off or individual Christians show this off. You see, you can't show this off if you are an armchair Christian or an earbud Christian. You know what I mean by that? Where you're walking around in your lonesome, you only listen to podcasts. Is it wrong to listen to podcast preachers? No. Or you curate your own YouTube playlist for your favorite worship music. Is it wrong? No. But if that's what you think the church is, you have a truncated and reductionistic view of the church.
1: Now, the church is an incarnate
0: church, with flesh, and bones. Jesus didn't come to save just individual persons, he came to save a people for himself.
1: Why do we have this individualistic
0: view of Christianity? It's because I've, I think we have a very singular mindset when it comes to our alienation and our reconciliation. Right? We think our biggest problem is, our, is only our alienation from God, our separation from God which leads to a single reconciliation. But Paul says back in chapter 2, no, you have a double problem. You're not just without God, you're without a community. It's a double alienation, double separation that leads to a double reconciliation. Unity with Jesus and unity with Jesus' people. This means that the church, in her manifold wisdom, all single women, all single men, all marrieds, all young, all old, show this manifold wisdom off. And what is this manifold wisdom? Celebrates differences and distinctions without being divided because the blood of Christ unites all of us.
1: term manifold. I love this term.
0: It means many-faceted. It's a term used by rug makers back in the first century. Now, many of you know this, or some of you do. I actually worked in an Oriental rug shop uh, to help put me through seminary. And these rugs, these tapestries were gorgeous, made of Many different types of yarns and threads that are of all different types of colors, textures, size, and shapes. Now, if you were to put the same texture, color, and size of yarn next to each other, kind of bland, kind of boring. If you just look at one of those threads, not all that much to behold. But when you begin to look at this tapestry, where the maker of that rug hand wove each one of those threads, put them in a particular place for particular design, and you see the distinctions of the colors and the threads, what you see is this one unified masterpiece that was worth thousands of dollars. This is what the church is. People with distinctions and differences put together into one beautiful masterpiece by the maker that's worth the cost of his son's life. He bled for the church, cleansed the church, suffered for the church. This is what the church shows off to the nations Shows off to our neighbors. Shows off to those evil rulers in the heavenly places. He didn't just save a person. He saved people to be his own possession. And I just want to know, is this what we are showing off to our neighbors? Is this what we prioritize because this is what Jesus prioritized? Can the world look into our lives and see the manifold, the many-faceted wisdom of God in the one new man called the church? You can't do this by yourself. And this can't be sameness. Sameness is the foolishness of the world. What he's calling for is oneness. It's the wisdom of God. He's not calling for uniformity. Uniformity that is the foolishness of the world, that you have to look exactly alike, believe the exact same things, do the exact same things in order to belong. He's calling for unity amidst our differences. That's the wisdom of God, even though it might seem like foolishness to those who are perishing. Because right now, You and your neighbors and the nations are longing for equality and unity, and they don't know where to find it. For so long, we've seen people fight for human rights, the equality of men and women, the equality of all races, rightfully so. But where did this concept, this idea, this idealism come from? It wasn't an American construct. It's not a social construct. It wasn't from Eastern religions, like Hinduism, where you're born into certain types of caste systems, or Buddhism, that if you do enough good, you'll come back as a better being, or if you don't do enough good, you'll come back as a lesser being. Those are all built on systems of hierarchy and worth. Know what all anthropologists find is that in the judeo Christian reality, it's only found there. It's only found there. It's centered on that we have all been created equally in the image of God. Person to the right, to the left, to the back, to the front, regardless of their skin tone, regardless of age, regardless of disability, regardless of relationship status, all have equal dignity and worth because they've been created and formed in the image of God. The world wants to admit that but they don't know where to find it. But what we also see in the world around us, and sadly sometimes in the church, we see the world divided based on how people can perform and what people do. Based on who people are and what you can contribute. And this is where Satan thinks he has the upper hand still. That he still can divide based on works.
1: But through the church, Paul says,
0: through the church, we get to agree and say, yes, all people, all people have inherent dignity and worth because they're created in the image of God. But we also get to say, we're just as fallen as you. We're worse than we think we are and you're worse than you think you are. But you know what else we get to say? Because of Jesus, we are far more loved, known, and welcomed into God the Father's arms than we ever dared hoped or imagined. That is the oneness we have because we have one Father who welcomes us like this. Does the world see this in the way that you love one another? Right? Jesus did not tell his disciples, hey guys, the world's going to know you're my disciples through how much you know. No, it's through how you show what you know. Right? It's the way you love one another. Does the world see our radical welcoming of others, not based on performative transactions, what they do or who they are? See, where where do we get this from? It's amazing that Paul, again, has to remind the church of the gospel in verse 12. By works, by family lineage, by by faith. What do we have? Bold access. Bold access. He rhymes with the gospel. Let me tell you a story. This this past week, got home a little bit late from work, and one of my daughters is on our front porch waiting for me. And I get up there, and she has tears in her eyes. And she says, Daddy, um, do you Do you know your Chronicles of Narnia books, the collector's edition? Yes. Do do you know that bookmark that you had a four-leaf clover in? Yes, and with tears in her eyes, she barely get the words out. She said, "I, I broke it. And she jumped into my arms jumped into my arms what gave her that type of bold access even though she did something wrong it's because she knows that her daddy while although he does not approve of what she did i still accept her
1: why because she's mine
0: She's mine. But you know what?" she told me. "Just so you guys know I'm not the hero of the story here. "Daddy, I thought you' were going to be mad at me."
1: Because sometimes Daddy does get mad. But even in all of my imperfections, even
0: in all of my failures. Why did she know she can just jump into my arms? Because at the end of the day, she knows her daddy will forgive as he's been forgiven. Her daddy will ask for forgiveness when he sins against her. You know what religion says? I'm in trouble. I've done something wrong. My dad's going to kill me. You know what the gospel says? I've messed up. I've hurt others. I've made a train wreck of my life. And I need my dad.
1: This is us, right? When we feel like we did done something wrong,
0: we feel like God's still mad at us. But the good news of the gospel is all of that madness, all of that anger was not poured out on us. It was poured out on Jesus. Hear this good news. God's not angry with you right now. We have bold access to this Father, bold access to this grace. How else would he unite different people? Because we have one access to one Father through the one Son, Jesus who took on our punishment. You know what the cross makes known to us? It makes known to us what we deserve is what Jesus got, separation from God. But it also makes known that we don't get separation. We get reconciliation with God. And that reconciliation with God leads to reconciliation with others within the church and reconciliation with those who have still yet to be folded into this family called the church. Amen? Why can we draw near? It's because Jesus was forsaken so that we can be forgiven. You don't have to be like my daughter, worrying about
1: if God's going to be mad with you, angry with you. You're welcomed into his presence,
0: so draw near. When we know this type of love, what do we do? We show it. We show it to others. We make it known to others. Even Paul says, if it means our suffering, he says, Don't worry about me for I'm suffering. Because it was for your glory. Glory magnified so you can know the Father more. Church, are we willing to say? hey, don't worry about my suffering so that I can continue to know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ in my neighbors, the nations, and even the rulers in the heavenly places can know this manifold wisdom that's found in the church. Amen? This It's made known so it could be shown.